You're listening to Just, stories about the people working to build thriving communities rooted in justice. I'm Jess Averhart, co-founder of Black Wall Street Homecoming. And I'm Rob Shields, executive director of the ReCity Network. All right, look, so here's why we're here. We're here to get proximate. We're here to listen. We're here to process. And we're here to help you process. But here's what we're not going to do. We're not going to be preachy because we don't have all the answers. And we will never make you feel like an outsider. Keeping with the theme of sharing, we always want to acknowledge the whole person. And that starts with our personal Personal check-in. Let's do it. Jess, how are you doing? Good morning. Hey, good morning. We're in a rhythm now. We, we got one under our belt. We, we are. Two. If you're listening to this one, you've, you've, yeah, you've, you've made it through the first episode, which means you heard us tell you, we warned you, this is what this is going to be about. And you said, you know what? I'm signing up. I'm staying tuned for that. So we're hoping now we're just going to deliver and continue to press in. So before we do that, we got to stick with tradition, right? How are things in your world? Catch us up since the last time that we talked. Well, yeah. So thanks for our listeners for coming back for season two, episode two. That means that, you know, you're kind of rocking with us, which I love. How am I, what's going on in my world? Okay. Well, listen, this will be interesting to see what our listeners think of this, whether they think I'm Looney Tune or not, but I had a tough Friday. I'd like hit a wall about everything. I was feeling a little suffocated. I was feeling overwhelmed. I think work, I think being still in this pattern with COVID and all that business. And so I went into Saturday. I was also feeling like, oh gosh, how do I get out of this? So I started watching these ultra marathon documentaries, which I, for our listeners who know or don't know me, I mean, if you see me, I'm clearly not an ultra marathon runner. Okay. (laughs) And frankly have no desire to be one, but I was watching these documentaries, this particular one where it was like the four deserts. And um, I was watching, I was so inspired one because they're kind of crazy they're running on sand in like the hottest weather, like 70 miles or 80 miles or 100 miles a day, or I don't even know. This is, it's too much. It's way too much. But I, I leave these documentaries thinking, that's like, if you can do that, you can do anything. Like if you can literally <laughs> run deserts and run four of them in a year, like you could run a, a Fortune 5 company, I feel like. You could just do anything. So I got myself out of my funk because I watched these crazy runners. Wow. So. That's what's rocking in my world. What are you up to? Uh, well, feeling, feeling way more guilty about the Pop-Tart I ate yesterday than I did <laughs> before you started talking. That's for sure. Goodness oh, gracious. it's a luxury. Oh, man. <laughs> I, I mean, I think I can kind of, I'm really glad you answered that way, though, because it's been a little while since we were finished up season one. And as this pandemic just lags on, and I think especially as this fall has the last shoe to drop was people realizing that school and sports and things are going to not be returning to quote unquote normal, that I think we've had to do this mental adjustment of like, how are we going to, we got to come up with some new normals and practice some self-care to be able to be healthy in this, in Mm -hmm. this time. I will say that one way that I've leaned into self-care in this season, my wife and I are doing intermittent fasting. Mm. which sounds like a really scary thing. But then when you think about it, you know, for those who aren't familiar, I I'm, was relatively new to the concept, this idea of like picking a block of time. I think it's between six and eight hours each day where that's the only time in which you eat. And so yeah. it can range for me because I got young kids. We do it on the later side because we got to be able to feed them. We got to eat when our kids eat, right? We can't, <laughs> we can't be doing right. too good every day. So, right. uh, 
12 to 7. I guess this is me being held accountable. I didn't really want to do plan to do this today. Be held Welcome accountable to by the whoever. Club, friend. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but club. that's we're we're committed to that. I don't know if we have really an end date on it, but it has helped for sure. And I, and I found that being disciplined in that area bleeds over into discipline in other areas also. So yeah. even just like being regulating not even what I eat, but re- when I eat actually changes what I want to eat and then, you know, working out these other patterns that are, are really healthy to do. So that's, that's a little taste into, into our world these days going pretty well. I mean, I just told you, I just confessed to eating a pop chart yesterday, so I'm not a perfect person. <laughs> uh, I don't think you should feel guilty about that pop chart. I think you should have enjoyed every bite. It's decadent. I, I, love, I mean, I don't I know if it. I would use decadent for a pop tart. It's, it's not a classy, it's not a classy snack. Don't, don't go too far. I was trying to help you out. I'm trying to help you out. <laughs> I was trying to help my friend get to the finish line. Yeah. Well, I think one of the themes I'm hearing though, is that we have shaken up our routine. And so like, we're talking about justice here and all of that, but like also our listeners, this is good to think about like, how can you maybe, you know, disrupt your day to day to just keep your mind fresh, keep your mind sharp, push yourself a little bit. You know, we have to do that on our own. We don't have you know, whatever your other norms were prior to COVID. So, you know, you have to really actively think about how to do that. Last time we talked, we talked about the importance of pace, right? And so while this conversation, we always do this warm up because we believe it's necessary to literally warm up the conversation and and just humanize each other a little bit. And because we know that relationships are crucial to justice work. And so we don't want to skip over this time. But even the examples we both shared, pace is important as you pursue justice you want to do this work. We talked about shifting towards that marathon sprint last episode. We got to be able to do that. Yeah. So what are the things we do incorporate in our lives? Because this is going to be a marathon and we don't know how long COVID is going to last, but we definitely know that the fight for justice has been a marathon societally and will continue to. It's not going to get solved tomorrow. It's not going to get solved on election day in November. We got to buckle in for a longer haul with this thing. And make sustainable decisions to set ourselves up for success. And so that's why I'm so excited to welcome on our guest for today. Enough of me talking. I, Yay! I I'm excited too. This is awesome. Our first guest of season our two. Our first guest we of season two. Got I very, think very lucky. Of anybody wow. better to help frame up this, this next chapter as we lean into these conversations, Jess, and our mutual friend, right? David Spickard. David, are you on? Are you there? Yeah, I'm here, Rob. Hey, Excited to be here. Hey, Welcome. Dad. Welcome, David. We're so excited to have you on. Jess and I's work life and personal life have intersected with David in the past. He's, he's a friend. He's a, a co-laborer in this fight for justice. For those of you who aren't familiar with David's work, just a little bit of background on him. He's the president of Spickard Consulting, which is a leadership development company based in, in Raleigh, just down the road, that works with CEO and leadership teams to strengthen their leadership, culture, strategy, and impact. In addition, which you'll see is very relevant to our podcast, he's created the Just Leadership Project, which engages CEOs and leaders of influence to learn how to navigate issues of justice to affect real change and leave a lasting legacy. Prior to his consulting work, he was a CEO for Jobs for Life, which is a global nonprofit organization that provided pathways for the unemployed and underemployed to experience dignity of work. And he did that for 18 years and saw impact in over 450 cities and 10 countries. David has mobilized literally thousands of leaders around the world 
to provide practical solutions to poverty and joblessness. And so we are so excited to welcome him on the call and to leverage his expertise in this space as a thought leader to talk about what it means to be a, a just leaders. Before we do that, David, I'd love to kick off the conversation just by asking you, how are you doing as a person before we kind of roll up our sleeves and talk just leadership? Tell us, how are you hanging in there these days? Yeah, and I'm, I'm a real fan of that question, Rob and Jess. As I've told you, I'm a big fan of the Just podcast, so I always enjoy your check-in. I'm good. I think going back to what you guys were saying earlier, being healthy and having pace is something I'm thinking about a lot during this pandemic. It's something that I talk about a lot with our leaders, just how do you rest and have a real sense of uh, health during a time like this. So <laughs> I've been trying different things uh, to keep me healthy. But I think our main thing that we're dealing with in our family is we have three of our kids. We have four children. Three of them are in college. And so we just sent them off to school. And we're just trying to navigate what it's going to look like for them uh, with all that's coming down the pike with COVID and schools going online and people leaving college campuses and what that looks like and just trusting uh, that they're, they're okay and that during this crazy time, we can trust that all will be well. So my wife and I were getting ready to be empty nesters, but our youngest decided to take all of her classes online, which ended up being a good decision and staying at home. So we are having a college at home now as well. So that's where we are with our family. Wow. <laughs> that's a lot, David. Just <laughs> I have one son. I have one child who is also college age. So I'm thinking about sending three away, one who's doing their work at home. So that is a major personal adjustment amidst everything else that's happening sort of around us more globally. Thank you for giving us that little bit of insight. Yeah, it's been interesting to watch our kids, you know, face disappointment and sadness and have to adjust. And as a parent, I want to protect them from that. But I'm realizing that I probably shouldn't, that this is actually a really good thing for them to go through and realize and I've been really proud of how our kids have been resilient and, and adjusted and figured out patience and things like that, things that I need to I need to learn myself and I'm watching that in them. So it's been a real tough time, but it's been an encouraging time from that perspective. Isn't it nice to see all that hard work we put in as parents show up finally? We do the show up moment at the end of our podcast and it's like That's how right. are you gonna show up? And it's like with our kids, like how are you gonna show up in life? Like for the rest of your life. It matters because we had something to do with it. So you're getting to really see yeah, the proof. That's awesome. Keeps you going. Mm -hmm. It does. Keeps you it going really as a does. parent. Okay. So for our listeners, I know that, you know, Rob laid out your background and the work that you've done historically and professionally. So when I think about leadership, mm -hmm. first of all, your Just Leadership Project is such a great name. I'm a big fan of the parallels there. But when we think about leadership and the way you have identified it, Clearly, there are gaps. I mean, we see them every day. We see gaps in just leadership daily, whether it's our elected officials, whether it's our community leaders. We can see where the gaps might be harmful or just void of full complexity of understanding who they're serving and constituencies. What are the gaps that you are identifying today in leadership? Then how did you get there? Because you have a really interesting like thesis around it. What do you see and how did you come to those conclusions? Well, that's a big question, but most of my perspective comes 
certainly from my time leading and being a part of Jobs for Life, we were deeply involved with work culture and how you think about work in terms of what it means to be a great employee. And so much of our work at Jobs for Life is helping people who are really struggling finding and keeping work, those who are unemployed and underemployed, and many who are experiencing tremendous barriers to work, helping them understand their dignity, helping them understand the dignity of work, the value of work, and what it means to be a great employee. And in the course of that, invariably, what you end up doing is getting into environments where you see who are great employers, who are the ones who are creating cultures that allow everyone to thrive, and what are the key elements that's required for a leader to create a culture like that. And of course, in my time, I had a lot of experience with seeing those who do that very well and those who didn't do that very well. What's interesting is I've gotten more into this in my current work is to see how significant this is when it comes to people being engaged with work. Gallup just did a study where they showed that 87% of employees are disengaged with their work, which is unbelievable when you think about it. Almost nine out of 10 people who are going to work this morning are dreading going to work and they are disengaged and not feeling like they're using their gifts, talents, and abilities, probably looking for another job. And shoot, you know, during the COVID, you know, you have the whole piece of people being out of work and how they even think about what it means for them to thrive. So that's a whole nother issue. But what also came out with that study was that 75% leave their jobs, not because of their job, but because of their bosses. So the reasons why people leave their job, and if you think about it and the jobs that you've had, and I think about some early jobs that I had, most of it was a result of the leadership, you know, the people that, yeah. who are providing that culture. And so what I found, probably the big general answer to your question as far as the gap goes with leadership is I found a lot of leaders are really good at building their business, but they're not really good at building their people. Mm-hmm. And they just really struggle with what it looks like to make this transition from being someone who's built a business and they've gotten people to help them build that business to now being a leader who invests in their people and who sees their job, their number one job, as to create a place for their people to really own and take the work that they're doing and multiply it and use all of their gifts, their talents and abilities to do what they're designed to do. Being a just leader is as much of a key piece to what it means to create an environment for everyone to thrive. So I built my business around those two big ideas. What does it mean to thrive and what does it mean to be just as a leader so that people no longer disengage with their work? When they wake up to go to work every day, they love what they're doing. They feel invigorated. They don't see their work as a job. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I love it. Fulfillment. Fulfillment. I have a friend who's working on building a company around just that exact concept is really understanding people and what drives them through fulfillment and not through this sort of top-down mentality about this is what it will look like for you. It's sort of like, what is it that you need to be the most Mm -hmm. full, whole person to bring the best out of you in your work environment. I really love that perspective and and the work that you're doing is so important, David. Yeah, it's I'm sitting here thinking about it and it's like you're you're naming truths that feel like common sense once they're spoken, but are 
not often spoken. Even just the term just leadership is not a term you hear a lot. You hear about justice a mm-hmm. lot and you hear about leadership a lot, but very rarely. I mean, this conversation is maybe one of the first, you know, that I've had when it comes to having, let's, let's dive into that conversation and talk about what it means to be a just leader. I feel like our listeners probably are relatively maybe new to that pairing also, or at least some folks listening in. So tell us, what is the nature of your work on a practical standpoint? Like, What does that look like on the day-to-day? How are you going about practically shaping and building just leaders? Yeah. So in, in two primary ways, one is I coach CEOs, business leaders, and their leadership teams, like you said at the beginning, around their leadership, how they build a culture in which everyone thrives, and how they think about impact through the platform that they have through their business. And I've actually created a Thrive assessment that I use when I go into companies or organizations that help them understand as leaders, are you thriving as a leader and are your people thriving? And that Thrive assessment gives them an overall score of how well you're thriving. And then it also gives you a score in six areas that mimic the word thrive. So T is trust. How much trust do you have in your people and how much trust do they have in you? H is health. Are you physically and emotionally healthy and are your people physically and emotionally healthy? R is relationships. How well do you all relate to one another? How deep do you feel connected to one another? I is impact. How much do you feel like the work that you're doing has a greater impact in the world? V is value. Do you feel valued? Do your people feel valued? And then E is engagement. How much do your people feel like they are using their gifts, talents, and abilities? And do they feel like they have an opportunity to grow and build a career at your place of business? And so that becomes a launching pad. It's amazing what comes out of that assessment because, you not, like I said, you not only get the overall score, but you get scores in each of those six areas and you get a leader score and then you get employee scores. And what that ends up doing is it uncovers the unspoken culture that is in every business or organization. Everybody knows that there's this culture that's underlying that nobody talks about. But when you have a tool like that, it unearths those issues and it gives you a context in which you can talk about them. And then the leader becomes more teachable and open to how they then understand how they need to change as a leader. And that then provides me the opportunity to walk with them both as a leader and their leadership teams and how they create a culture in which everyone thrives. The second piece of my work is I've created small groups of CEOs and business leaders who are meeting on a regular basis in a mini MINI cohort environment around the idea of just leadership, creating an environment for leaders of power, wealth, and influence to learn what it means to be a just leader and how to engage issues of justice. And this honestly came out of my time at Jobs for Life, one, because my time at Jobs for Life changed my life. It put me in environments where I saw a lot of brokenness, where in communities where people were experiencing tremendous emotional, physical barriers that were keeping them from being all that they were designed to be. When you talk about a lack of jobs, unemployment, underemployment, That is an indication of greater issues that are underneath the surface that are causing that to happen, that are systematic and result of individual choices and consequences. So issues of race, power, diversity, privilege, 
broken structures, et cetera, are things that I got exposed to. And I was, as a person who grew up in privilege, as a white male who was experiencing what I would call my poverty of wealth, Mm. which keeps me from understanding and building relationships where I can cross culture and understand what's really going on at deep levels with folks who are having to overcome those barriers made me realize how important it is for people who are like me to get in the game and to stay in the game as it relates to issues of justice and to do so in a way that would not only hopefully affect real change, but allow us people like me to experience fullness. That there was actually something missing in my life that I didn't know I was missing that came in the formula of spending myself for those in need rather than just keeping everything to myself. I also found that whenever I was in an environment that was particularly a really diverse environment where there are conversations about race or conversations about how we're going to solve poverty or how we're going to solve joblessness. Most of those environments were with people at the grassroots level who were really engaged in the community, understood exactly what was going on. But I found that a lot of people of power, wealth, and influence were not at those discussions, not at the table. And they, in many ways, held some of the keys that were needed to be unlocked to solve some of those problems. And I realized that many of them really resist being in environments like that. To have conversations around issues of justice is really uh, not something that is a place that they frequent. And so what does it look like to create a safe space for leaders of power, wealth, and influence to engage meaningfully with issues of justice in a way that's authentic, allows them to welcome that environment and to push us into places that allow us to experience that fullness that I was missing. And so these two things of thriving and being just kind of come together because honestly, I think over the next 50, 100 years, World-class leaders, if you want to be a world-class leader, you're going to have to be able to navigate issues of justice. Mm -hmm. Our world is demanding it, and in many ways, and I come from a faith perspective, those of us in the faith community, we haven't built our muscles very well. You'd think we would be really good at this, (laughs) uh, given the, the God we serve and how He loves justice. But these are muscles that we need to build in order to be world-class leaders for the next generation. Mm. I love this approach, David. Why I love this approach is this is kind of the road less traveled, right? The approach I'm talking about is your work around CEOs who have power and influence and wealth and inviting them to the table to add to their toolkit, right? And to take their power of wealth and influence to the next level to really be actively in pursuit of justice in their environment that they have the opportunity to influence. So let's talk about this world-class leader. If you were to archetype that world-class leader, what are those qualities? What does that archetype consist of? Yeah, that's a good question. So I'm going to be careful because this is a journey for me. And I also think I don't claim to be an expert. (laughs) I'm just like you guys. We're swimming in these waters, right? And I also don't think it's a destination. Like all of a sudden you're unjust one day and then you become just the next. Like I think it's just an ongoing process and an ongoing journey that is endless. A couple things that have framed the way I have 
facilitated our conversations around being just. And I'll use a a scripture that has been really helpful. It's a proverb. It's Proverbs 11.10. And it says, when the righteous prosper, the city rejoices. The word righteous in that verse is a Hebrew word that's used over 200 times in the Old Testament called sadakim. And sadakim refers to people of power, wealth, and influence who steward everything that they have. And when it says everything, it means everything, like their money, their power, their resources, their home, their education, their networks, their relationships, everything Mm -hmm. that they have, not for themselves, but for others and for God's peace and justice. That's the the definition of Sadakim, that they steward everything that they have for God's peace and justice. And when they prosper, the city rejoices. That word rejoice is also important because that is an unbridled, like wild celebration. This is what happens when the pandemic is over. We rush to the streets and we dance in the streets uncontrollably. It's like the war is over, our oppressors are gone. And when it says the city, it says the whole city which means everyone, including the poorest of the poor, the most marginalized, are dancing wildly in the streets. Why? Because the wealthy, those who are powerful, who have wealth and influence, who are the Sadakim, are becoming more powerful, more wealthy, and having more influence. And so this dynamic of instead of us getting resentful that the rich are getting richer and the poor are getting poorer, It's this idea that even the poorest of the poor are dancing in the streets because the Sadakim are gaining more power because they know when that leader wins, everyone wins. So the question is, who are the Sadakim? Who are the righteous? And how do we become the righteous? There's a lot we can say about that. But so far, we've come up with four qualities. One is they see the whole playing field. They don't just operate within their own sphere of influence. It's almost like they're a point guard. They have their head on a swivel and they can see the whole court and they can see things in themselves first, like their blind spots, their strengths, their weaknesses, their own biases. They can see the whole playing field in others. So they're really good listeners. They're slow to speak and quick to listen. And they can see life through other people's perspectives. And then they can see the whole playing field in their community. They see the whole community, not just certain parts of the community, particularly those places in our communities that are overlooked. The Sadakim know where those places are. They know the names of the streets. They know the school names. They know the businesses. They even probably shop in those areas, too. Two, they build cultural competency. They are leaders who understand how to cross cultural lines, all kinds of cultural lines, from race to economics to gender to faith. They know how to navigate cultural lines and understand that to be key to what it means to be a leader. Third, and this might be the hardest one, they give power away. They understand what it looks like to give power away in ways that require sacrifice, where they decrease so that others increase, and where they provide access to people who may not have access and are generous and open-handed with that and not feeling like it's such, it's always just a zero-sum game. Like if I lose, you win, you lose, I win. You know, this idea of kind of making the pie bigger would be the hope. And then finally, they take bold and courageous action. 
And that action is usually unpopular, it's disruptive, and it's slow. It's the kind of thing where we take action today where we may not see the benefit until our children see it or their children's children see it. So we can talk about justice all we want, but if it doesn't lead us to action that really creates change, then we're not really the Sadakim. So those are the, the long answer. And again, like I said, I don't claim to be an expert, but that's what we're wrestling with in our groups and how that then fleshes out within the context of the people that we lead and the businesses that we run. So David, I actually really appreciate this example, but it's one that I haven't thought about ever. It also is bringing some things forward for me that I want to understand. So here's here's what I'm thinking. Some of it is that I'm trying to overlay what is happening right now in our climate, right now. Racial tension, the injustice that we see in our communities today in the United States of America 2020 versus the Old Testament example that you gave and sort of this idea of rejoicing, right? So, so I'm not feeling like I want to rejoice for people in power who are using their power to give to others, right? In communities that are underserved and that those communities are rejoicing. And it feels very power structure-ish. And it really reminds me of this idea around charity versus justice. And as you were talking, I got it. Like I get what you're saying. And in the Old Testament picture, it makes sense to me, but it feels like a very old fashioned charity model of those in power, using their power to give, what did you say, their wealth, influence and power away to those that are served. And those that receive that gift contribution or their charity are rejoicing in the streets along with them. And that feels weird to me and doesn't doesn't sync up to today. So how does that, what do you think about that? I probably didn't phrase that right because I'm just sort of hearing, I'm, I'm reacting to what you said, but it just doesn't feel congruent to me. Yeah, no, I get it. I appreciate your question because I think there's a real subtle nuance to this that has to be understood by me and something I'm growing in myself to understand this biblical idea that certainly is not being played out as we see it today. So the idea then going back is the the Sadakim are those who steward everything that they have, not just to give it away to those in need or who are marginalized, although that's part of it, but it's to steward everything for peace and justice. So it's this idea, and and if those who are marginalized or those who are oppressed in a society are ever to get to a point where they're rejoicing, it's because things are being transformed, that people are no longer oppressed, that people who haven't had opportunity have opportunity. They have spiritual and physical health. They have economic sufficiency. They have a sense of security. The idea of this is that those who are in leadership or those who are considered to be the Sadakim are using everything they have to create that kind of outcome. Instead of what we see normally in the charity model where you have the the savior idea where people come in with power and they're fixing everything and they're the hero. And that's not what we're talking about. In fact, it's this this idea of power, in fact, that the Sadakim are distributing is this emptying power. It's this I decrease, you increase power. And it's uh, largely focused on the systems and the things that are broken in a society that are making things unjust. 
And how can I use everything in my power, everything that I have to fix those broken systems and those things that are unjust? A friend of mine, Dr. Amy Sherman, writes about this so beautifully in her book, Kingdom Calling, where she talks about this goes way beyond the normal view of charity. The tendency is to think that if you're a person of power, and in our society, predominantly that's people who are white, who people who have my background and look like me. The goal is to make as much money as you can and then just give it away, give parts of it away. And while, again, that can be good, it doesn't get after what we're really talking about, which has to do with complete transformation of a city, complete transformation of people's lives where they experience that peace and that justice and the sense of dignity and equality that should be for everyone. And that's why everyone is rejoicing. Everybody is winning when it happens. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes, that is much clearer to me. The transformative piece and that language really does resonate. And the relinquishing of power for others to gain power so that there becomes more of a balance sort of speaks to me. So that. That does make sense. It's just, you know, as you think about today, those who have the power, influence, and and wealth, we all know empirically that the majority of those people who hold that space are white men. So the work that you're doing in general, but in just leadership, really helping to teach and, and train and educate and provide insight for those people that hold those positions, I think is critical so that communities are transformed holistically at every point. And that this idea of being the Sadakim or being just, a just leader, impacts every single area of my life as a leader, not just you know, the things I do outside of my, the way I leave my family, the way I leave my company or the other areas of influence that I have, but it, it becomes the filter through which, the grid through which I view everything. And so I really struggled with this idea of thinking through how to bring together leaders who have power, wealth, and influence to learn what it means to be just. So I brought together CEOs and business owners who are interested in having this conversation in a way that they welcome versus resisting. I've struggled with the idea of the fact that the groups that I've gathered are all white men. And that's intentional in that we understand that a lot of the the way our society is set up now is that people like me have that power and influence. And so what does it look like to engage in these conversations where we can have conversations that white people need to have with one another to push us down this road of being people who step into these places that are going to confront injustices that can create this kind of flourishing for all people. And it's been really interesting Because oftentimes what happens is, and we have these conversations that we're conflicted with, the idea of being just may be in direct conflict with being profitable as a Mm -hmm. company. And I don't mean that in a negative way. Like companies need to be profitable. They need to be successful. And because we live in an an environment where it's dog eat dog, where we have to compete and people who are in the marketplace are using power that that, that's not this giveaway power, but it's this dominating power that I am confronted with. What does it mean to make a just decision that may cause me and my company not to be profitable? 
or make a decision that allows us to be profitable, mm. but is not just. And how do we make that decision? What do we need to challenge each other with as we navigate those issues? That's real thought leadership. I mean, I'm using like these buzzwords, but like that's thought and leadership. <laughs> what I've found is that there's a lot of complexity. There's a lot of nuance. And to be honest, that people in these groups often hear sweeping statements and culture as it relates to these issues and really want to push on them. And I see that from both sides. And so it's important to be able to get into a room or talk like this, like we're having these conversations and be able to unpack the complexity of it uh, because there are real conflicts that people have to face in order to, to get to this point where everybody's winning. Of course, we live in a broken world and things don't work as they're supposed to. And that's why these tensions are there that we have to navigate. You mentioned nuance, and I think no, no truer words have been spoken because as I'm processing what you're saying, David, it's, there's so many different triggers that you could kind of, if you look at any piece of this conversation, what could give me pause is knowing how someone could take something out of context and apply it unjustly. So to your point and to Jess's point earlier, it's like visceral reaction because we're having this conversation in 2020 to the powerful gaining more power knowing that we know that historically what that has disproportionately been almost exclusively white men, and they haven't done a lot of good with that power, or they've committed incredible acts of injustice individually, corporately, systemically, right? And so like, there's this cultural reaction that we have to the powerful gaining more power. And it's really hard to leave our history because it's so embedded in shaping our response to that. I akin it to this idea of the analogy of a rising tide lifts all boats. People say that almost to justify what taking that one phrase out of context of it's okay that the powerful get more powerful because everyone will win if I get richer and I get more money, even though I'm not pursuing justice with that, that whole trickle down concept. But in our work, we've often said, yeah, that the rising tide lifts all boats is great if you've got a boat. But in a culture and society that has historically denied people literally from, you want to apply the boat analogy to housing as one example, like redlining people away from ownership of the boat, of the home, then a rising tide is terrible news for you if you're in the water. And we have historically pushed people into the water, people of color historically, communities of color. And so this juxtaposition of we have to almost reimagine what a just leader is because we don't even have a framework for what it looks like for the oppressed and the marginalized to be excited and rejoice for someone gaining more power because we just haven't had a lot of great examples of people who once they have the power are actually looking out for anyone but themselves. That's right. And you're kind of introducing this novel idea that we got to sit with and wrestle with a little bit because in my mind, I'm thinking, what are we doing about power and how much are we elevating power as the ultimate hope? Because you know, historically, if all we want for people is to gain more power, but we don't examine kind of the heart motivations behind what to do with it, then if we don't look at the heart, then people who gain power, and that's all we aim for, you end up just doing it in reverse. You end up just looking to look out for number one and oppress whoever's not in power. And that cycle just is over and over and over. So what you're kind of introducing to me almost is like cycle breaking. Like how do we break this cycle of history where people who are in power are actually looking out and prioritizing the needs of their neighbor and the person who is marginalized above their own 
well-being and at great cost to themselves. And that seems like that's how you're defining what actual leadership is. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, so the outcome we're trying to get to is boats rise. The outcome we're trying to get to is the pie gets bigger. The outcome we're trying to get to is, yes, the city is rejoicing. We're all dancing in the street. Everyone wins. It's a tough thing for us to imagine because we live in a society of winners and losers, powerful and powerless. And so it's a difficult concept. And we live in a world where in order to have more power, you you gain more for yourself. But in order to get to all boats rise, pie is bigger. It requires dying. <laughs> it involves dying to ourselves. It involves sacrifice. It involves discomfort. It involves emptying ourselves. It involves giving up the things that we thought would give us security that ultimately don't give us security. It's understanding that everything we have is not our own. And so we can be generous with it and freely giving to others. It's understanding what success is and that success is much broader. We think of success as, you know, earning and having as much all the toys and having comfort and kind of a heaven on earth mentality versus that we're all in right relationships with one another, which all turns on its head the way we, we live our lives and what's what we see as affirmed. So no one wants to die. <laughs> to themselves. I don't want to do it. I don't want to give up those things. But it's the pathway to life and pathway for everyone winning. And that's the kind of leadership that we're talking about. Yeah, I think that's right on. That's very helpful when I think about how do you build the pathway to this. So where I got stuck, on the example was listening to the illustration, imagining it in my head and feeling the incongruency, right? Simply because I was experiencing the results of the work that we haven't done as a country, what we haven't done as a community that will lead to that moment. The work of trust building, the work of trust and verify, frankly, because there's been a lot of examples where black and brown communities do trust and are lied to, the trust is broken, and so then you have to start over. So the trust and verify portion, the relationship building portion, the die to yourself portion, right? That's the pathway to that moment of rejoicing, where we do start to see constructs crumble, where we do start to see balances and imbalances shift. So I do see that as that's the beacon. But laying it on top of where we are today, there's just, I just couldn't even find my way there. And it felt wrong to me because it was like, one more time, white people giving money to whatever. I'm just, just felt wrong to me. But the yeah. process by which we get there is the beauty of this conversation because that's the work. And that's the individual transformation that collectively will create a moment like that. I'm hopeful in my lifetime, but thank you for that. Yeah, and you, you highlighted something we said at the very beginning. This is as much about the process as it is the destination. And gosh, I don't feel like I'm an expert. I mean, I'm saying these things out of my mouth and I know what I do. That's so different. And I know the, the framework from which I operate, things that I've learned as someone who's grown up in privilege, that's a part of my DNA. It's like my virus. And so what's the anecdote? Well, you know, I got to shut down, completely reorient, be quarantined and kind of 
totally get reframed and reprogrammed in a world that will continually program me the, the normal way. So it's a, it's a fight against this stream, this rushing stream. And the reason why we've gathered these groups, it takes that reprogramming that happens over time. And I've found in many situations where I'm in environments either talking about justice or talking about issues of race, they become one-off moments and everybody gets frustrated, gets tied around the axle, feeling like they're not heard or understood. And then we go off into our own worlds. And we may have the courage to come back to it another time, but the more disenchanted we get from it, we just say, ah, forget it. I'll just go off and do my own thing. So part of the reason why we're doing this is to have ongoing, staying in it, knowing that we have to, A, talk about it to sort of reframe our minds, but then you have to experience it. We have to put ourselves in situations where we're in environments that are uncomfortable. We have to be intentional about putting ourselves in places where we're the minority. We need to listen, be people who listen and be quick to listen, slow to speak, and, and sit and recognize uh, the things that we need to see and understand in order for us to move down this road. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Thank you for that. Thank you for that. And thanks for sharing with our audience how to show up in these times. Just it's it's a long, it's a long process. It is complex. And so each of us need to take our own spiritual accounting. Where are we in the process so that we know what is our next right step for you, David, for you, Rob? What's the next right step for me, Jess, and for our listeners? And those steps will look different. It's that undercurrent that we want to get ourselves and our families to a point where we can look around and, and see that there might, that rejoicing might be just on the other side of the hill because we're doing right. work. I appreciate that. Thank you again, David. Mm -hmm. Before we let you go, you know, earlier you spoke on the, you, these qualities of a just leader and you, you actually have a practical way for people to interconnect and, and join you on the journey. Briefly share a little bit about the details of where people can, can find more information about that and, and how they might be able to take an action step there. Yeah. So on Wednesday, September 16th at 1130, Rob is joining me to lead an online workshop that we're calling the four qualities of a just leader. So we're going to walk through those qualities I mentioned earlier and just kind of give a brief overview of what that looks like. Those who might be going deeper, we're going to start some new groups next year for those who want to be a part of a just leadership group, navigating this in a, any cohort environment, and would love to have people engage with that if they're interested. And I'm real excited, Rob, that you're joining. I think we're going to have a great time. And the more we can get this out to folks, you know, I think uh, it's inspiring. I, I would say one, one last thing. A lot of white leaders are motivated or feel like they're motivated by guilt and shame. And that is a very, very bad motivator. And yet what I found with this is this inspires creativity and sort of thinking beyond our normal way of thinking to be inspired about the ways that we can live our lives and have a, a redeeming legacy that again, impacts our, our children and their children. So I'm hopeful that that's one of the outcomes that comes from our continuing this conversation. David, where can people go to register for that workshop? They can go to davidspicker.com, which is my website. And there's a way to send me a, a message. And we're going to send out uh, personal invitations to folks who are interested. And that would be the best way to do that.
Well, we appreciate you being on, David. This is this has been, I think, an important conversation. You know, this idea of just leadership is more relevant now than than ever. And so just appreciate the work that you're doing and for joining us today for this conversation. Thank you guys. Appreciate you so much. Thanks, David. See you, David. All right. Well, that was a really surprising conversation for me in that, you know, I know David. I and consider him a friend and really respect the work that he does around justice and just leadership. I had not heard his take, his, his perspective that he shared, that nuanced perspective around the righteous who in the biblical terms hold power, wealth, and influence and, and all that. And so I was really taken by it. And I was taken on a ride, frankly, <laughs> in the conversation because I was like, what is he talking about? And so like in real life, though, for our listeners, David is a white man who is in a position of power, influence, and wealth. (laughs) and And he navigates in the world of supporting white men in the world of power, influence, and wealth, where he's helping them have a reckoning and come to terms with, not through guilt and shame, but through the spirit of creativity, which he just shared, their role in justice. And so I love that. I love all of that about that. But as I'm listening to him, all I can think of is this white man is telling me that in the perfect world, this is what I heard him say, in the perfect world and biblically, you know, so God says that those who are in power, influence and have wealth are considered the righteous. This is what I heard him say, who in my mind in 2020, that's white men who are going to flood the streets and those who are marginalized and give away their power and give away their money so they can make more money to give it away. And that those who receive it also rejoice in the streets and everyone's rejoicing together. And it felt very charity model to me. And so as a black woman, I'm like, I have a visceral reaction to that because that is not my picture of a rejoicing moment, right? That is a picture of charity and that we need to work on systems and processes and not the reverse. So, so I'm glad that David was able to unpack for me how he really sees that coming about and that there is a pathway through transformative relationships, through transformative conversations, through dismantling systems in which trust is built and power is shifted. And that to me was like the moment where I was like, aha, okay. Yes. Got it. And I think Jess, we've been conditioned. I'm going to pick up on two words you said there. So that, because you were explaining your your first kind of visceral right, reaction right, to what right, you were saying. Right, right? Right. Now, in 2020 and in, in 2020, we live, right. you have been conditioned, I think we all have, right? To think this presentation he was saying of rich and powerful give away power so that they get more. Okay. Right. That actually is not what he was saying, but it's what we've been conditioned to hear because mm-hmm. that's what people, honestly, that's a heart check thing, right? Mm-hmm. People might say, hey, I'll do what I got to do, but my end game is me getting more. Right. Motivated. What's your motivator? Ultimately, my end game is selfish. Yeah. Right. We don't really have a framework because we haven't been given a ton of examples of people who literally are looking to give up power, not for their own good, but to actually truly for the good of their neighbor that comes at a great cost to themselves. And they've erased the so that. We put the so that into the story because that's the story we know. Exactly. It's a right? very- but that's not the story he was telling. And I think if I'm, if I'm hearing the fullness of this conversation, it was, he says, the rich and powerful need to learn to sacrifice at great cost to themselves. There is no so that, right? But he's saying if they do that and the people who are marginalized are actually flourishing, right. then 
if those people who are just leaders, if they were to gain power, people who are marginalized would celebrate it because they, of how they use that power. They use it not for themselves, but they use it for other people. What he's getting at is the heart of a leader. We don't have a lot of examples in view, a lot of trust in people who have power because historically they haven't really used it for anyone else but themselves. But he's presenting a different framework that it's hard to hope for. And it's actually hard not to be a little cynical, right? But it's so revolutionary, this model that he presents that it takes some time to sit with it. We can't shed our cultural context, but we can't also let that erase hope for a different way and a different path that really he was presenting to us. Yeah, no, I think it's good. It is. It's definitely, you can't be myopic. You have to have, and you can have two minds here. Like two things can be true at the same time in this case. And it was hard for me to believe that two things could be true at the same time, essentially. I mean, that's what it boiled down for me. But I was really glad that we took the time to wrestle with that a little bit because it does challenge my way of thinking. Mine too. It speaks to this idea that the interconnectedness versus the zero-sum game. We talked about this way back from season one of this both-and lens that we need to try to, to push ourselves because we've been so conditioned to think, if you win, I lose. Right. Versus what he's talking about is if we truly do this and we're interconnected, if I win, then you win. I don't need to feel threatened by you succeeding and flourishing and thriving. It doesn't mean necessarily that it comes at my expense. Right. If done with the right posture down to the heart, which I think is what he was really getting at is we kind of have to do some deconstruction on the lens in which we've been conditioned to view justice and injustice and pull away from and deconstruct this either or lens in which we've been conditioned to see the world, to see it through this both and. And now is a really important time when injustice is smacking us in the face and it's so difficult. Are we going to end up reinforcing the status quo of all this because we actually don't shed an incomplete lens and replace it with this interconnected lens of human flourishing that you can flourish and I can flourish. We can flourish together. Yeah, it's good. Well, (laughs) season two, holy smokes, we are not shying away. I think it means we're on the right path. Honestly, if these conversations left us feeling like, well, that was easy, then probably wouldn't be having the right conversations. Yeah, yeah. Well, I enjoy these kinds of moments that I agree with you 100%. If we wrapped it and we're like, okay, next, what's next week, then probably our listeners aren't getting a whole lot out of that either. So this is really good. I feel like um, I learned quite a bit today. Also was able to like push on my, my own value system and push on it, make sure that, you know, where do I stand on some of these things and require the conversation, I think is what, what was really helpful for me just personally. And I think you set a tone, Jess, you modeled that literally in the course of this episode of leaning in. We could have just easily kind of said, ah, you know, I'm going to put this in an existing box. No, I'm actually going to listen to something that gives me pause and see if I can push through that to a more complete answer. Honestly, that's an inspiration to me is I need to look to follow your lead there to do that more in my life because I'm, I'm so quick to put people in a box, be quick to judge and, and instead of being quick to listen and slow to speak and find, maybe push through to a, a more complete, more holistic answer that I think if there are more people that are doing that and are following your lead, Jess, that are listening to this call, the better we're going to be and the more hope we have to actually pursuing justice as a community. So thanks for setting the tone for season two yet again, as you always do on brand, very on brand. Oh, Rob, thank you, friend. I appreciate (laughs) that. Well, grateful for you. Let's go after it. Yeah, this was great. So I'll see you next week. Next week. All right. 
Bye. Thanks so much for listening to Just. In the spirit of sharing, if you like what you've heard, tell a friend about the show and give us a five-star rating and review. Many thanks to DJ P-Dog and producer Low Key for producing the music for our show. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts.